Now, friends, we come to the third chapter of this very wonderful little book, and I have put with it the last verse of the second chapter and the first three verses here, and I have given it the title, The Father's Love for His Children. And as we said last time in this last verse, verse 29, and I'm reading it again, "...if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him." Now, it's one thing to testify that we know Christ and are in him. It's quite another to have a life that reveals that he is our righteousness. In other words, it's wonderful to know positionally that we're in Christ and we're accepted in the Beloved. But it's altogether different to have a life down here that is commensurate with that on our plane down here. In other words, he's saying this, we recognize other believers by their lives and not their lips. Righteousness, you see, is a family characteristic of the father and his children. You see, God's children take after their father. They have his characteristics. But now, will you notice how he puts it in this first verse? Well, I'm going to read it as it is in the text, and then I'm going to give you my translation. And when I give you my translation, as many of you that listen to me know, I don't recommend it. I just want you to hear it. Now I'm reading from the New Schofield Reference Bible. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now, that is the very wonderful statement that is made. Now, I'm going to give you my translation, and it's literal, and that's all I'm concerned about. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Listen to this. Behold ye of what sort of love the Father hath bestowed upon are given to us, that we should be named children of God. And we are. And because of this, the world does not know doesn't begin to understand us because it did not know or begin to understand him. In other words, what he's saying here is, we do not expect to be the sons of God. We are the sons of God. And that is the better translation that we have. And we are. We are the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the wonderful statement that he's making here in this particular passage of Scripture. And I feel like this is something that we should emphasize a great deal. Now, the important thing to note here is that the child of God can say emphatically, I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are. We don't hope to be. We don't expect to be, but the thrilling fact is that every believer can exult and rejoice and constantly thank him. And our boast is not in ourselves, but we're boasting of the wonderful shepherd that we have. Now, the other thing that we need to note here, and before I leave that, I probably should add this, that John has made it perfectly clear that if you are a born-again child of God, 
You're going to exhibit a life that conforms to the Father. And that a child of God need not be in the false position of saying, as an old hymn used to say, "'Tis a point I long to know, oft it causes anxious thought. Do I love my Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? Well, now are we the children of God. He says, right now we are the children of God. Now, the kind of love that he's talking about is, I'd like to call it a strange kind of love, an unusual kind of love, the kind of love that we're not accustomed to. And that is the meaning here. What manner of love the fathers loved us, and the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That is, God's love for us. And he goes on to show that God's demonstrated his love. He gave his son to die for us. And how many of us today have somebody that would die for us? And how many folk would you be willing to die for? Well, God loves you. And he's proven his love. He gave his son to die for you. Now, I think the greatest motive in the world and the greatest motivating force in the world is God's love. And it is the greatest drive in the human family today. A man falls in love with a woman. A woman falls in love with a man and the sacrifices some of them make. And when it's real, genuine love, it's a beautiful thing. It's a noble thing. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's a tremendous drive. And God's love for us is a wonderful, glorious thing. And this brings out the fact that this is the section that's going to emphasize now that God is love. This is a wonderful thing. The true child of God, he's going to prove his spiritual birth by being obedient to God's word. And here we have this wonderful love for us that should motivate us. That's going to be the thing that's going to cause us to want to live for God. Behold, what unusual kind, what a different kind of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And we are. That is the way that some translations have it. And we are the children of God. We don't expect to be. We are the children of God right now. Now, this brings out the thing that I've mentioned several times, and I mention it again, and that is our salvation is in three tenses. I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved. Now, I have been saved. The Lord Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. That is something that you get the moment you trust Christ, and you'll never be any more saved than you are the moment that you trust him. And born again, born into the family of God. You see, he's addressing little children here. These are God's children. We, he says here, what manner of love the Father bestowed upon us. Why? Well, we're his children. It's his children that he's bestowed this love upon. And now they respond to that love 
by obedience unto him and by living a life that is well-pleasing to him. So you can say, I have been saved, but I am being saved. And Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And John has talked to us along the same line here, that if we are the children of God, we're going to be obedient unto him, we're going to grow, we're going to develop, and we are going to go on in the Christian faith. Now, therefore, we can say, I am being saved. Now, let me read. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, the world won't understand us, that's for sure, because it didn't understand him. And it takes a spiritual insight. And that was the anointing that we talked about. He has given us an anointing. The Spirit of God is the thing that can make this real to us. And only the Spirit of God can do that, friends, until he confirms it to your heart. Why, of course you have to say, well, I don't know whether I'm saved. But the Spirit of God can confirm that and conform it to your heart, by the way. Now, he goes on to say here, and we're told here, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Well, that is a wonderful prospect, you see. And he sees in you and me what he can make out of us. I'm thankful that God's not through with me. If I thought he was through with me now, well, I'd be very much discouraged, but he's yet to perform a work. I heard this story about Michelangelo when they brought in that great big piece of marble. Michelangelo walked around it and looked at it, and he said, My, isn't it beautiful? And his helper there looked at it and says, Well, all I see is just a great big piece of marble. That's all. And Michelangelo said, Oh, I forgot. You don't see what I see. I see a statue of David there. And the helper looked and he says, well, I don't see it. And Michelangelo says, I know you don't because it's now in my own mind, but I'm going to translate it into marble. And he did that, by the way. Now, God says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. He sees what he's going to make out of us someday and what a glorious prospect that's going to be for us. But the wonderful part is this. Beloved, now are we the children of God. Somebody says, McGee, I'm a little discouraged with you. I think you ought to be a little farther along, and I'll agree with you on that. I wish I was a better man. I wish I knew more about the Word of God. I wish I had applied myself better in my life as I look back. Yes, I'd be willing to go along with that, that I ought to be farther along than I am. But don't you be discouraged with me. And if you won't be, then I won't be discouraged with you because of the fact that it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to see the glorified Christ. 
Now, we're not going to be equal to him, but we're going to be like him in our own way. And that doesn't mean that all of us are going to be little robots or just little duplicates. We're not going to be an IBM machine turning out the same thing. It's not that at all. It means with our own personality, our own individuality, our own selves. He'll never destroy that person of Vernon McGee. He'll not destroy the person that you are. But he's going to bring you up to the full measure and stature where you'll be like him, not identical to him, but like him. And that's going to be wonderful, will it not? I think that it's going to be wonderful in heaven that we're going to love everybody. And I go for that. But the most wonderful thing about heaven, friends, to me is that everybody's going to love me. That's going to be quite a change. And I'm looking forward to that. And that'll be true of you, too. Beloved, now are we the sons, uh, the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And may I say that this is another great incentive to Christian living. I don't think there's anything quite like this. And that is the point that John makes now in verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Now, if you believe that Jesus is coming and someday you're going to be like him, that's going to cause you to live a pure life down here. You're not going to be identical to him someday, but you're going to be like him. And that's going to be wonderful. And this is a real incentive for holy living. And I know of nothing that is such a great incentive for holy living than this particular thing here. In other words, may I say to you, we're not wonderful now, but we shall be wonderful someday. And we are going to be able to accomplish our goal. One of the most wonderful things I think is said about the new Jerusalem we're going to live. It's going to be a place where you'll wipe away all tears, and that'll be great. There'll be no sorrow, be no suffering. All of that's wonderful. But the thing that strikes me in that passage of Scripture in the 21st of Revelation is this. He says, Behold, I make all things new. And that is what I like. Now, I don't know about you today, but I can only speak for myself. And I'm very frank to make this confession. I have never really been the man that I wanted to be. I'm at the age now where I guess a man begins to dream a little. And I look back over my life, and I've never been the man that I've wanted to be, and I've never been the preacher I've wanted to be. I've never really preached the sermon that I've wanted to preach. And I've had people that have been kind to me and said nice things, as well as other things, but they've said nice things. And I've appreciated it, but I knew in my own heart, I wish I could do better. And I've never been the husband that I've wanted to be. The summer when I had the hepatitis and 
my wife and I sat for three months on our patio and enjoyed it for the first time in the 25 years we've had our, our home there. We've just been so busy, but we had to stay home, and we got to talking, and we went back to the days that we met and how we met and what went before and how things worked out, and there were certain questions that she had, and I had too. We'd been so busy, we just taken a lot of things for granted. And I never shall forget that night in Texas that I went to this dinner party and there was this girl with those dark brown eyes and hair, color of a raven's wing, black. My, I tell you, I fell for her. But there were some questions that I didn't have answered. And so this summer we got acquainted. When I went back and thought of my life, I thought, my, I wish I'd have been a better husband than I was. I should have been. And I've never been the father that I wanted to be. Some people think I'm a little, you know, too much for my grandson. Well, I'm trying to make up for him what I left out for my own child. And so, may I say that I've never really attained my goal. I'd thank God for the way he led me. He's been good to me in my life, and I rejoice in the fact he's let me have this radio ministry. I never thought he'd ever do that, but he did. But really, I have not attained my goal. And he's saying, he says, behold, I make all things new. He's saying Vernon McGee, and he's saying it to you. He said, we're going to be able to start all over again, (laughs) and you're really going to live an eternal life, and you're going to attain your goal. Wouldn't that be wonderful to grow in grace and the knowledge of him not only in this life, but for all eternity? What a prospect there lies before us. And I can't think of anything any more wonderful than that. And that's what we have here, you see, the Father's love for his children. Isn't it wonderful? I have been saved. I am being saved. And I'm going to be saved. It's going to be wonderful someday. And so you don't be discouraged with me, and I won't be discouraged with you. Now we come to where he discusses the two natures of the believer in action. That's how they work out in life. And he's getting right down now where the rubber meets the road, right down where we live. Now will you listen to him here, because this is a section that's greatly misunderstood, by the way. He says here, and I'm reading now, "...whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law." For sin is the transgression of the law. Now, I have before me even brought them down here to the study, and I don't often do that sort of thing, two very fine Greek commentaries. And actually, the word here, commit sin, means everyone that doeth sin is really the literal of it, and it is that which is true. And it really means this. It means one who lives continually and habitually in sin. You know folk like that. Well, I used to live that way, and the fellows around me live that way. We never thought of anything. When I was working in the bank, 
frankly, working in the bank was secondary. Our interest was in women and liquor and in having a good time. That was what we thought life was all about in those days. And that was what we call living. And we lived in it continually. We talked about it. Now, that's what he means, whosoever committed, goes on committing sin, just lives in sin, transgresseth also the law. In other words, God has made certain laws. God did say, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he means that today, too. And all this free, new way of looking at things, as they say, it's not a new way at all. It's as old as the hills. fact of the matter is, it goes back to the jungle. It goes back to paganism. It was the way man lived years ago. Whosoever just goes on committing sin, transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. In other words, God has put up the law so you'll know that you're a sinner. You'll know what he requires, and that is the purpose of the law. The law was never given to save. It was given to reveal to man that he is a sinner. Now, that means that sin is basically and fundamentally that which is contrary to the will of God. Anything that's contrary to the will of God is sin. In other words, sin is insubordination to the will of God. Now, let's develop that for just a moment. You remember the little girl was asked in Sunday school her definition of sin. What was sin? And she said, I think it's anything that you like to do. And you know, she wasn't far from it. Because this old nature that you and I have, it's absolutely contrary to the will of God. Paul, in the 8th chapter of Romans, emphasizes that. For they that are after the flesh, the old nature, they do mind or obey the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, how are you living? In the flesh or in the Spirit? And now he goes on to say, For to be carnally minded is death. Now, that's separation from God. The thing John's talking about, you can't have fellowship with him and be a carnal Christian. It's impossible to do that. And I'm afraid that we've got too much talking today about, oh, how I love God and how I am serving Him and how wonderful He is and how pious some folk are. But my friends, they are not in fellowship with Him because to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That is, you're disobedient to God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now, Paul also makes it very clear that before the law was given, there was sin. But it wasn't transgression. And that's the reason that we have here a statement in 1 John that doesn't quite tell us, "...whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law." That's not a complete definition, and it's not a good translation. As I say, it is lawlessness. Now, you see, Paul had said in Romans 4:15, "...for where no law is, there's no transgression, but there is sin." Because he says in Romans 5, verse 12, 
Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That is, we sinned in Adam. His sin was ours. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there's no law. But man was still a sinner, and he was in, in subordination to God. But nevertheless, it was not transgression. Nevertheless, he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. They sinned because why? They were sinners. And I think in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verse 6, and I've mentioned this many times, that this is probably the true picture of any unsaved man. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everyone's turned to his own way. And those three words tell our story. His own way. What's your problem? What's my problem? We want to have our way. The little baby in the crib squealing at the top of his voice. What is the matter with the little fellow? Well, he wants his way. We are born that way. We're born with that nature. And that nature's in rebellion against God. And as the poem has it, I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the foe. I did not love my shepherd's voice. I would not be controlled. I was a wayward child. I did not love my home. I did not love my father's voice. I loved afar to roam. But the child of God, now he has come to God and he's been born. He calls these little children. He says, my little children here. And he talks about the little children. Let me read on down. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Two things there that are important for us to gather. And one is, he takes away our sins, plural. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, he died for the sin of the world. He is the propitiation for our sin, not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, what's the difference? Well, he died a redemptive death to pay the penalty of our sin. But he also died for our sins that he might deliver us right here and now from the power of sin. And he wants us to live for him. We've been given a new nature now. And in him is no sin. But if you want the literal of that, in him sin is not. In other words, he died a redemptive death, a sin offering. He was without spot and without blemish. And he offered himself for yours and mine, and that you and I might live for him today. Now, will you notice, I move on. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Now, we're dealing with something that's very important. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the believer who abides in Christ does not practice sin. He doesn't live in it. 
The sinner lives in it all the time. The child of God's got a new nature. He cannot live a sinful life. Again, I must say it. Pigs live in pig pens. Prodigal sons come home. Oh, they can get in the pig pen, but they're not going to stay there. And while they're there, they are miserable, always, if they're God's child. Now, if you can be happy in sin, then, my friend, you're not God's child. Because God's children, they have the nature of their fathers, we've said. Now, listen to this letter. It says that he's a homosexual and he is miserable in it. Listen, today I come to you with a very critical problem and hope that you will help me, for I'm desperate and have nothing left to try or anybody to turn to. To several Christians and to some non-Christian individuals, I've asked to help me without really telling what my problem is, and I always get the same answer, pray about it. They all said, well, I have. For over a year, I've been praying. I know that I'm a newborn, again, Christian, although many times I had doubts, but I know that I have been saved. Brother, I don't know what you're going to think when you find that I'm a homosexual. Perhaps you'd think that I'm living in false assurance of eternal life, but believe me, this is not the case. I know I'm saved, but I lost the joy of my salvation for a while, and I try to live a Christian life, and I never was so miserable. Now, I want to say this to this young man. The reason I read his letter, it's encouraging. He says that he's a homosexual, and he is miserable, and he has no joy. He has no peace. Of course he doesn't. I won't question whether he's a child of God. I want to say this to him. And I want to say it to him, and there are many others just like him listening in. My friend, he can give you a deliverance from it. And you need to claim that from him. Ask him to bring you to the place of peace and joy in your life. And if you are God's child, you will never be content in that state. That's the idea of the liberal churches today telling these folk that it's sort of like the alcoholic, that you're just sick. And the only disease that they peddle today is alcohol. If it's a disease, they're selling it today and advertise it. But the same thing is true about this. This is not a disease. God calls it a sin. And God says there is a deliverance. Now, there may be an abnormality, which obviously there is. And I'm sure by con consulting a Christian psychologist, he could help you a great deal, but make sure you go to a Christian psychologist. The other crowd will push your father into your problem, by the way, and you'll never be delivered out of it. God can and will deliver you because you're his child. Now, that's what the Word of God says here. You either believe it or you don't believe it. And if you believe it, God can deliver you. Listen, little children. He's talking to his children now. He's not talking to the world. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Now, that's the thing that reveals the child of God. And to abide in him doesn't mean just positionally. That's true. You have a position in Christ. Never be disturbed. But it's also a practical consideration down here if you are to abide him in fellowship. 
and in service, these things must be given up. I talked to a young man over at Phoenix, Arizona, the other day. Oh, he's a fine-looking young man. Came all the way out to the church. He says, Dr. McGee, I've been listening to you on the radio. I think you can help me. I'm an alcoholic. He said, I accepted Christ several years ago. And he says, I can go for a long time without drinking. And then I get drunk. And he says, I hate myself. And he told me a story. He began to weep this fine-looking young fellow. He's an executive. And he says, I know eventually it'll affect my job if I keep this thing up. And I don't want to because I am a child of God. And Dr. McGee, don't tell me I'm not because I have accepted Christ. I've done exactly what you said on the radio, and I've accepted. And I've driven 50 miles to get here this morning. I didn't come to hear your sermon. I didn't hear it. I've come to ask you, is there a deliverance for me? And I told him there was. If he's got the nature of his father, there's one thing for sure. God will not let him be content and happy. That was an unhappy young man the most unhappy young man I've seen in a long time. I told him, I said, every time you fall down, brother, go back to your heavenly father and tell him what you did, and you don't want to disgrace him again. And the day will come and he'll deliver you from that, because that's the story of other men. And that's the story of any sinner today who professes Christ and finds himself bound down by habit. God can, and God will deliver you from it. And by the way, you happen to be talking to a fellow that knows something about that. Because God, in a very marvelous way, intervened in my life. One side of my family, my mother's side, was German. And I want to tell you, they were heavy drinkers, the whole outfit. And all my father was not an alcoholic, but he was a heavy drinker. And I want to tell you, I came up in that atmosphere, and I started out that way. I thank God, and I was just a boy. I thank God for a deliverance, friend. I know he can deliver you, and he will deliver you from that. Now, let's move on. This is important. This deals with living right where we are today. You just can't go and take some little course and get the deliverance. You're going to have to call upon God for this and have real contact with him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. That's where sin began with him. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. He started out sinning, he lives in it. He's in rebellion against God all the time. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And only Jesus Christ can deliver you. And if you go to him, don't even come to me because I can't help you. And none of these others can help you either. But he can, the great physician, and I urge you to go to him with your problem. Now, friends, I'm going to read the eighth verse. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Now, that I think we need to recognize is the source of all sin. He is the one that's responsible for being brought into the world today. He's the one that led our first parents. The reason that you and I today have a sinful nature is because of the devil. Now, he that committed sin is of the devil. You're a child of the devil. 
You remember the Lord Jesus said to the religious rulers in his day, Ye are of your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do. The interesting thing is we take after our father. And if your father's the devil, then may I say you're going to act like him. And if your father is our heavenly father, then you have that nature and you're going to act like him. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. That is, he started out sinning, he's been at it ever since. He's in rebellion against God. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sin of the world. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And that is the penalty of sin. When you've trusted Christ, your sins are behind you. You're saved in him. They'll never be brought up as far as your salvation is concerned. You've trusted him. But we are told that he not only takes away our sin, but that he also was manifested to take away our sins, plural. And he was without sin. He had no sin nature. He was wholly harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. But he was a human being. And he died as our sin offering. Now, that paid the penalty. But he was manifested also, we are told here, to take away our sins. And actually, our is not in the better manuscripts. It's to take away sins. Take away sins of believers, all believers. In other words, to make it possible for you to live a Christian life. Now, that brings me to the subject of this section. Every believer has two natures. That's what Paul's talking about in the seventh of Romans. Paul says, what I would not do, that new nature I've got, I do it. The old nature has been in control so long, he goes ahead. Now, Paul says, what I would do, that is the new nature, I don't do it. The old nature drags his feet. He's not going to serve God. He is in rebellion against God. And we're told very definitely here in the eighth chapter of Romans. I read this again. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not until you are born again. And he goes on to say, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And there's no idea of a condition here. He says, since the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Now, let's be very clear about this today. We're talking about born-again believers. We're not talking about professing Christians. We're not talking about church members. We're not talking about those that have just been baptized and were baptized before they were saved. We're not talking about those that go through a ritual or belong to some system. We're talking now about those that have been born again. Will you notice what he says? That the Lord Jesus was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is, make it possible for you to live for God.
Now, whosoever is born of God, that is, this is the new birth we're talking about. This is what the Lord Jesus said to a religious ruler. Ye must be born again. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now, you're given a new nature, and that new nature does not commit sin, will not commit sin. My friend, that's the reason the prodigal son couldn't stay in the pig pen. He was not a pig. He was a son of the father, and he longed for the father's house. And if you're a child of God, and if you're a son of God, you're going to want that father's house. You're going to long for it. You're going to want it. Now, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now, unfortunately, that gives a wrong impression here, when it says he doth not commit sin, the idea is not just one act of sin, but he doesn't live in sin. We are told today that if any man sin, any Christian man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, it's not his will. In fact, the matter is, he makes it very clear that he wants us to live. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And sin is anything contrary to the will of God. And when that comes into your life, what happens if any man sin? He's talking to believers. Why, what? We have an advocate with the Father. And that's the reason he could say that if we confess our sins, who's he talking to? To believers. Now, here, what he's talking about... Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. That new nature will not live in a pig pen. Never, never, friends, under no circumstances will it. For his seed remaineth in him. You have a divine nature if you're a child of God. And he cannot sin because he is what? Born of God. Now, my friend, we're talking about something that's real. We're talking about that which is genuine. Oh, I don't mean some little profession that you made when you went down and shed a few tears. The question is, have you been born of God? And again, I want to say it. I believe in the security of the believers, but I believe in the insecurity of make-believers. And it's well, I think, for us to take an inventory and to look at our lives and ask ourselves the question. Examine yourself and see whether you're in the faith or not. Are you really a child of God? Do you long after the things of God? That's the important thing. This letter I read of this poor boy, a homosexual. Somebody says he can't be a child of God. I say he can. But if he is a child of God, he's going to give it up. I say this, that a prodigal son ought not to be in a pig pen. And he's not going to live there. He's going to get out. A day will come, I'll arise and go to my father. And his father's not anywhere near that pig pen. He's as far from it as you possibly can get. And this is important. Whosoever is born of God doth not practice sin, does not go on in sin. And you received a new nature, and you didn't lose your old nature. That's the Problem. No wonder Paul cried out, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And only the Spirit of God can deliver you. Now, if you recognize you're helpless and hopeless, and I'd say that to many today, that some sin you down and it spoils your life, wrecked your joy, and you're miserable. May I say to you that 
He can and he will deliver you. If you want to be delivered, (laughs) if you want to get rid of that thing, if you really want to have joy in your life, you really want to serve him, if you mean business with him, he means business with you. For his seed remaineth him, and he cannot sin. He's born of God. Now, in this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. And I think we need a little more manifesting today, because so many of the children of God look like they belong to somebody else. They look like they at least are orphans. Now, we have here the two natures, and I want to look at that for just a moment. And I want to use an illustration. It's a very homely illustration, but I trust it will illustrate the thing that we're trying to say. Up in my ranch, up here in California, and by the way, I heard of a dear lady that said to a neighbor of hers, and the neighbor's the one who told me, is over in Phoenix. She said, do you know that Dr. McGee owns a ranch in California? And I'm amazed that a poor preacher could own a ranch. And this lady laughed and says, well, why didn't you listen to him carefully? And he'd have told you how big his ranch is. And so I want to say now, I hope that lady is listening, and I'll tell you how big my ranch is that I have in California. It's 72 feet wide. It goes back 123 feet, not miles or yards. These are feet. And in the middle of that ranch, there's my home. That's where I live. And I've got a lot of fruit trees. I have. I did have a nectarine, but I got a tangerine. My, how it bore fruit this past year. And I have three orange trees. I have a lemon tree. And I have a plum tree. I have an apricot tree. And I have a fig tree. And I have a lot of guava bushes. And I tell you, friends, and besides that, I got four avocado trees. Now, that's quite a range, as you can see. And I love fruit, and I enjoy getting out in my ranch and looking around. Very seldom when I'm home that a day doesn't pass that I don't go all the way around my yard looking at every tree. Well, the avocado trees are budded trees. That is, below the bud, it was a wild avocado, I'm told. I didn't set them out. They were there when I bought the lot. And it was just a wild avocado that grew out here and could grow in dry land. But it has budded to it several very fine varieties. One is a fiordi, a very fine avocado. And the bud, you can see where it is. It's just about as high as my head on one particular tree. Now, below that bud, every now and then a branch will come out from the wild or the old nature, the old avocado. And I have to trim it off. Now, sometimes I'm busy in conferences and away, and I don't get to tend to things like that. And below the bud, the limb will come out, and it'll bloom, and it'll bear fruit. It's the lousiest fruit you've ever seen. A little bitty nubby, dried-up things. It's just no good at all. But above that, oh, it's luscious. Now, my problem is to keep those limbs cut off below the bud and not bear fruit down there. Bear fruit up above where 
It's got a new nature, and it bears fruit. And this avocado tree can bear either kind of fruit. It's just up to me. And I want to say to you that I'm like that avocado tree. I got two natures. I can, oh, I can be mean. I can live on a pretty low plane. I got a nature that's that way. And all of us have that nature. We never get rid of it. And we all come short of the glory of God. Now, above that, that's where I can bear fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And today, I feel good today, and I have the joy of the Lord in my heart. I'm rejoicing today, but tomorrow you may find me down in the dumps. Now, I ought not to be there, but that's something that happens, you know. And when it does, why, I'm living in the old nature. Now, Paul in Galatians is telling the believer to learn to walk in the Spirit. That is, you can't do it yourself. You see, Paul found out in the seventh of Romans that there are two things. There's no good in the old nature. And the second thing was, there's no power in the new nature. You've got to have help. I don't care who you are. You can't live the Christian life yourself. You must have help. It's only the Spirit of God working in you that can do that. Therefore, he wants you to produce fruit. And that's the reason the Lord Jesus said, I am the genuine vine. You are the branches. Now he says, I'm going to prune you, and I prune that tree above, and it bears better fruit when it's pruned. And he prunes us to get good fruit. But sometimes down there in that old nature, it'll bear fruit too. And it's called the works of the flesh. It's not very attractive, by the way. It's nothing to brag about. Now, He says in verse 10, and I'm reading it again, "...in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil." You can tell them apart by the fruit. By their fruit ye shall know them, the Lord Jesus said. And as the late Dr. McGinley used to say, he said, I'm not to judge you, but I'm a fruit inspector. And we ought to be able to find little fruit on believers, our fellow believers. "...whosoever doeth not righteousness is not a God." Now, I don't care who he is or what profession he makes, whether it's a he or a she, that if they are not trying to live for God, they're not a child of God. You have no desire to live for God. I don't care how active you are. You may be a deacon in the church. You may be busy as a termite and having the same effect in the church. But my friend, the important thing is this, and this is the identification Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not a God. I didn't say that. John did say it, and the Spirit of God said it through him. Now, the second mark of identification, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, there's the second mark. Do you love other Christians? May I say to you, if you're a child of God, you're going to love other Christians. And by the way, the word for love is going to occur now again and again. And we ought to get this straight right here at the beginning. That there are actually three Greek words that are translated by the one word love. One of them is eros. It's never used in the Bible. That's erotic love. That has to do with sex, if you please. Greeks talked a great deal about that, and they had a goddess named Eros. And Aphrodite, the goddess. May I say to you that that's not used in the Bible. Now, phileo... It means friendship. It means a love of the brethren. It's a brother sort of love. 
Now the other word, the highest word, agapao, and that's the word that's used here. That's God's love. God so loved the world. Now, what we are told here, that we're to love our brother. And may I say that we're finding a great deal today, a great deal of talk about love, love, love. And it's articulated with sex in many places. In the Bible, it has no relationship to that whatsoever. Neither he that loveth not his brother. That means to have a concern for your brother. That means to be helpful to your brother. And that doesn't mean that you care for his ways or his conversation. The things that interest him may not interest you. It doesn't mean that you have to run and put your arms around But you should have a concern for him. Now I'm going to move on, for this is going to be developed through this area. For this is the message that she heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, John has a great deal to say about the beginning. Now, the beginning he's talking about in his epistle here is the beginning that began with the incarnation of Christ. And the Lord Jesus, you remember, he's the one that taught this. He said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. That would be the mark. Now, John is merely reaffirming that here. And he says, this is not new, he says, I'm telling you. You heard this from the beginning. The Lord Jesus taught it to us. And the apostles, all the apostles have taught this. This is from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this is love of believers. And this is something that's woefully lacking today in many places. Now, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and killed his brother. Now, Cain and Abel were brothers, blood brothers, and very much alike in many ways. But Cain killed his brother. Why? And why killed him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. What was his problem? Jealousy. That was his problem. That was the great sin. That is one of the great sins today. Jealousy today is hurting, I think, the cause of Christ more than anything else. And that is that old secret sin that many believers cover up. How many soloists are jealous of another soloist? How many preachers are jealous of another preacher? And a great deal of the backbiting that goes on in the church has its root in one thing, jealousy. Oh, that's a mean one, jealousy. And that's the reason Cain killed Abel. God accepted it works of his brother. Now, he's going to continue to develop this relationship of believers, which will be a real test of our Christian faith. We'll see that next time. Now, friends, as we return to this particular section here, where we are actually looking at the two natures of the believer, and we see them here in action. Now, we are seeing that there are two things that manifest the child of God. Now, God knows the heart, whether you and I have really been born again and are his children. But our neighbor next door doesn't know that. And the only way is for that life of God to be manifested in the believer. And it's not necessarily manifested by lip and language. It's manifested by life, by living. You see, there are two families in the world. This teaching of the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man 
I consider it a damnable heresy today that's in the world. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches there are two families in the world. The Lord Jesus said to the religious rulers, you of your father the devil. The devil's got a family down here, by the way. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. And that means a life. Now, actually, not just one act, because you may do one act of unrighteousness. The prodigal may get in the pig pen. He's not going to live there. He's going to live in the father's house, because he has the nature of the father. And neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, you can't harbor hatred in your heart against another believer. Now, we're going to see when we get to the next chapter, this is not something that is sloppy and slippery by any means, that every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes along doesn't mean that you're to be taken in by them. We're warned to be very careful indeed and to keep our eyes open. We're going to see that when we get to the next chapter, and I'll hold that until we do get there. But we are to have a love in our heart. Now, this love is actually love that is a concern, that acts, that does something. And we're going to see that now as we move down into this chapter here in the remainder of it. Now, he gives two examples here, Cain and Abel. And obviously, Cain was a child of the devil. And Abel was a child of the Lord. There was that difference. And why did he kill him? Well, he killed him because he hated him. And he hated him because, as we said last time, he was jealous of him. But I got to thinking about that word jealous, and I'm not sure that I'm satisfied with it. The word jealousy has in it a note of suspicion. A man may be jealous of his wife, which means that he probably loves her, but he suspects that she may not be faithful to him. And jealousy has that in it. I think the better word is the word envy. And envy and jealousy are given in the dictionary as a synonym. And it's all right, but there is a distinction without really being a difference. And let me give the meaning of envy, and that is the thing that characterized Cain. He was envious of his brother, and it led to murder. And it's that that's in the human heart, as Dr. Ross says, the most destructive force in the world is jealousy and envy. Now, let me give you here a definition of envy. It says here, discontent or uneasiness at the sight of another's excellence or good fortune, accompanied with some degree of hatred and a desire to possess equal advantages. And that's exactly the thing that describes Cain. Or, if you want a definition of envious, and again, this is very good here, actuated or directed by or proceeding from envy, jealously pained by the excellence or good fortune of another. And then this kind of a distinction is made here, which I think is good, that actually a woman is not envious of a man's courage or jealous of it. 
And that is also true of a man. It's not jealous of a woman's beauty by any means. But this that we would desire to have. And I would say that envy and jealousy in the church today and among believers hurts the cause of Christ probably more than anything else. And he uses Cain and Abel as an example, and certainly they are. Now he says in verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Don't act as if it's some strange, weird thing that has happened if the world doesn't accept you, because the world is not going to accept you. John makes it very clear that all the way through this epistle, he's merely passing on the teachings that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave. Now, over in the Gospel of John, in chapter 15, in verse 18, the Lord Jesus said this, "...if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you." Now, that's always been a problem for many of us in the ministry. I have never really appreciated for anyone to say, when you were pastor in a certain place, you were a popular minister. Well, I'm not sure that I care for that. I deeply regret if I was popular with a certain crowd. I should not have been, and I don't want to be popular with them, because the Lord Jesus is not popular with that crowd. I was listening in or watching the other night on TV, and a minister was brought into a program. And here he had this marvelous opportunity to witness for Christ, but he played up to that unsaved crowd. And he said some nice, flowery, complimentary things, and he was applauded for it. But I wondered if there wasn't really sorrow in heaven that he was in a crowd where Jesus is not popular. But he is popular. Now, that is something today that the child of God has to accept and has to recognize. Now, there is an offense of the cross, but we ought not to magnify it. We ought not to make ourselves very objectionable and obnoxious. Many Christians do that, and they are not accepted not because they're Christians, but because they're just really obnoxious. They'd be whether they were a Christian or not. And we need to be very careful about that, of course. Now, in verse 14, he says, We know that we pass from death unto life. Now, you can know whether you're a child of God or not. This idea that you and I can't know is a big mistake, because the Word of God says, we know that we pass from death unto life. How do you know it? Because we love the brethren. Now, do you have a love in your heart for the brethren? One of the greatest experiences that I've had since I've been on radio is traveling over the country and having conferences in many places and meeting so many wonderful believers today. And We've had several rather interesting experiences as we've gone on our way. It's amazing. I recall that I was in a city in the east, 
And I felt very much alone. My wife was not with me at the time. And I felt very, very lonesome. And I went into a restaurant to eat. And I sat down to eat. And I just gave my order to the waitress. And a man sitting next to me, or next table, he got up and came over. He says, well, Dr. McGee, I didn't expect to see you here. And I said, well, who do I have the pleasure of speaking to? Well, he said, I have never met you before. And he says, to tell the truth, I've never seen you before. He says, but I listened to you on the radio. And then he said, may I sit down? I said, certainly. And he sat down, and he and I had one of the most wonderful times of fellowship. How did we have it? Well, he was a child of God. And I was having meetings in the town. He didn't even know that I was there. And he brought his wife to the meetings, and I told him about it. And we went out afterward, after the service that night, for refreshments. And I probably ought to say that he picked up the tab, and that, to me, was a proof he's a real brother. And really and truly, these things are quite wonderful in the ministry. You meet these wonderful Christians around the country... Today, and I was on a golf course playing, and there was a couple up ahead of us, and they were slowing us down. I yelled at them one time, and finally we came up to right where they were, and the man looked at me, and he says, Well, Dr. McGee, I didn't know you were out here playing golf. In fact, I didn't know you were in this area. This was when I was down in Florida. And he said, Were you the fellow trying to hurry me along? And I said, Yes. He said, Well... Be very frank with you, I have been to the doctor, and I'm not too well yet, and I have to play slowly. So I had to apologize to the man for being very rude and abrupt, uh, trying to get him to hurry. And we had just had a wonderful time of fellowship. Our twosome joined his twosome, he and his wife, and we played along together. We got so interested in talking that the crowd back of us, the foursome yelled at us for not moving along. And again... Somebody I'd never seen, and you find out he's your brother. Now, that is the thing that he's talking about here. Do you love the brethren? When you can meet around the person of Christ, and you can talk about Christ with these folk, friends, you got a brother or sister. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, if you have no concern for the child of God, and there are those that don't seem to have any concern, but you and I to have a concern. Now, he's going to give us a warning in the next chapter. But may I say this, that when you meet a very wonderful Christian, I always look forward to our tours. We have a marvelous group, and a lot of those folks will be new people, and we're to have two weeks of the most wonderful fellowship that you've ever heard of. We just have a great time. Why? Because... You love the brethren, and that's a proof of your salvation, friends. And there's no greater proof than that as far as your own heart is concerned. Now, he's developing this. Notice what he says in verse 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. Now, John said that. I didn't say it. I'd never thought of that. But again, he's quoting the Lord Jesus. And if you go back to Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 21 You'll hear what the Lord said. He says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, 
and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rakah, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. May I say to you, that is something that is very strong. In other words, the Lord Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart toward your brother, well, that actually means that you are a murderer. And you see, envy and jealousy lead to hatred. And hatred is murder, friends. And how many murderers, by the way, are there around today? They're more out of jail than are in jail by this standard that God has put up for us today. Now, he gives us here in verse 16, he says, By this perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, if you'll note in your Bible that of God is in italics, which means it's not in the better manuscripts are in the manuscripts at all. It just simply means it's put in there to clarify the passage. I don't think we need that kind of clarification here. It says, by this perceive we love, the love. Well, it's an example. Now, this is the way God loves. How does God love? Because he laid down his life for us. Now, that's the standard that's put before us. Now, he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, I don't know about you. I have not come up to that level in my life. Actually, today, do you know very many people that would put their life on the line for you? It's a wonderful thing if they would do that sort of thing. But how many of us would be willing to put our life on the line for someone else? Well, this is the standard, and until you and I have come to that high level, we are not exhibiting the love that we should have for the brethren. Now, we have seen in this section here the two natures of the believer, because when you become a child of God, you don't get rid of your old nature. You have two natures, an old nature and a new nature. And we have seen that the new nature is the only nature that can please God. Man in his natural state, he's unable to please God. And the carnal mind is enmity against God. And there are times that when we feel like praying, and there are times when we feel like not praying. And there's a song, I think, that I can give this part of it that's the important part that we sing sometimes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I serve. Well, someone read that, and they didn't like it. They said, that doesn't express my feeling about it, and they changed it. And you'll find it two different ways, and in some songbooks it's one way, and other songbooks it's another way. And the other way is prone to worship. Lord, I feel it, prone to serve the God I love. Now, which is true for a believer? Is it prone to wander or is it prone to worship? Well, if you ask me, 
I'd say both are true. I've got a nature that I've discovered is prone to wander. I've got another nature that's prone to worship. And God says, if you're my child, then you're going to manifest my nature. You're going to manifest that new nature that I've given to you. Now, he has drawn it down here to this matter of love of the brethren. And this is the real proof that God loves us. He gave his son to die for us. Now, that's the standard of God's love, and he's the example. And we, as he says, should be willing to lay down our life for the brethren. Now, today, you don't quite see that spirit manifested as it should be. And yet, I was greatly touched by several people when I got sick the first time with cancer. And I had several people that wrote me that they had said they would be willing to take that cancerous disease themselves. Well, I was overwhelmed by two or three letters that I got. I never knew anybody, frankly, would be willing to go that far. Now, I recognize that they couldn't do it, of course, because this is a case of where every man bears his own burden, and that's one of them. When you get cancer, you bear that yourself. So that that is quite true. They couldn't take it, but their willingness was the thing that made such a tremendous impression upon my own heart, my own life. Verse 17, But whosoever hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his compassions from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? What he's saying here is that love actually is not a sentiment at all. It's that which expresses itself. You remember James had a great deal to say about that, that if you say that you have faith and your brother comes to you and you say, well, I'll pray for you, brother. That's what a lot of folks say. But the important thing is, is our love manifested in what we're doing. I think one of the most tragic things in the world will be for many believers to come into the presence of Christ and to have had this world's goods down here and have not used it for the cause of Christ. And the passage I was referring to in James is in the second chapter of James, verse 16, where the Christian says, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? In other words, you may talk about loving, but loving actually, love's not made in the parlor or the bedroom. Love is made in the kitchen. Here's a man that goes out, leaves home five o'clock in the morning, and you say to him, where are you going? He says, I'm going to work. Well, why are you going to work? i got a wife and two children to feed. Well, you say, I wouldn't worry about them. You're not going to make a fool of yourself and go out there and just kill yourself just working for them. He said, I sure am. I love them. (laughs) They're mine. And then you go into the kitchen, and there's that wife up in the morning. She's burned her fingers there, taking those hot biscuits out of the oven. And the poor girl, she's tired and weary in the evening when he gets home, and yet she has to continue to work, takes care of the children and all that. And you say, look, I wouldn't fool with this. And she says, well, this man's my husband, and I love him. 
said, I wouldn't bother with it. But may I say to you, friends, love's going to get in action. And you see it in a home where there's love between the man and the woman. But what about love today among believers? It ought to get in action. ought to start doing something one for another. And until it does, my friend, it's the worst kind of hypocrisy, you see. This is the thing John's talking about. And you don't get this in little courses today, do you? Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let us not just love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, what he's saying here is that real love is made in the kitchen. When you see that wife bending over a hot stove cooking for that man, that man is out yonder making a living for her. And it's pretty silly if you take love out of it. Why should he work for her? Why should she work for him? But it's a love relationship. And Christianity should be that kind of a relationship. Now, he moves into something here that's quite interesting. He says, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now, this is what gives an assurance when we come before God in prayer. Very frankly, as he's made it very clear, it's possible to be ashamed at the appearing of Christ. A great many folk today are talking about the coming of Christ, but they don't seem to be doing anything. Now, when you and I come into his presence, it's going to be a very awesome experience because he's going to demand some fruit. What have you been doing? If you love me, keep my commandments. And one of them is, is to get the word of God out. Take it to the ends of the earth. Are you involved in that in any way? Are you involved in anything that reveals that you're a child of God? That is the important thing. And I think that was true when I was a boy living in the country. How wonderful it was expressed then. Nobody got sick, but what all the neighbors came in and helped. Now, we've come a long ways, and I know today that there are all kinds of new methods of doing things. But I'll be very frank with you. I'd sure like to get back to that day when the neighbors did come in and did help, and the neighbors did take an interest. And today, we expect that some bureau of the government is going to take care of the individual and that they will be taken to the hospital, which is the best place for them and all that sort of thing. But a great many Christians are not getting involved in actually the thing that the Lord is interested in, and we're going to have to give an account before him someday. Now, here he's saying, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and we shall assure our hearts before him. Now, this is what gives an assurance, and this is very important. But now he makes this statement, verse 20, and this is very important to see. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Now, if you are a child of God and you are using your substance, and I don't care who you are, whether you're poor or rich, that you're doing something to get the Word of God out. 
God gives you an assurance in your heart that you're in his will, that you're doing the thing that he wants done. And then you have an assurance when you go before him in prayer. You have an assurance that when you stand before him someday. Paul knew. Paul says, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I know now about that. The child of God today can have an assurance. But suppose we're not doing what we should do. And that's quite possible. Does it mean we've lost our salvation? Or maybe we didn't have it to begin with? Well, listen to him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Well, we don't lose our salvation. Because if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, greater than our lack of assurance. And he's going to hear our prayer. Isn't he a wonderful God that when we fail him, he won't fail us? And though you don't have any assurance when you go before him, and a great many Christians come to him really empty-handed, I've done nothing for you, Lord. I've done nothing at all. Yet I'm coming to you in prayer. Well, God's greater than your heart. He'll hear your prayer. He's going to deal with you. He may not answer the prayers you're praying it, and chances are he won't. But God's going to hear and answer according to his will. For if our heart condemn us, God's greater than our heart, and he knoweth all things. You can depend on him, even if you don't have assurance, friend. Just keep going to him with it. As I told a young fellow that's an alcoholic, he said, I've prayed about this. I said, go pray some more. <laughs> he says, well, I just don't feel now I have any assurance at all. I failed him so. I said, he knows your heart. You apparently are sincere. The way you're talking to me, I believe you're sincere. I believe you mean business. And I know this, God's going to give you a deliverance for it. You don't have any assurance. Of course you don't. You failed him. But he's greater than your heart. And he knows you. If he knows that you're sincere in this and you failed him, God is going to deal with you. You can depend on it. And God's going to give that young man a deliverance. Now, will you notice... He says, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Now, if our heart does not condemn us, it gives us a confidence in prayer. It gives us an assurance. There was a minister who meant a great deal to me when I was a young preacher. I have his picture here up above this tape recorder that I'm making this tape on right now. And I always love to hear him pray. Because he prayed with assurance. That's the way he prayed to God. He didn't go up to him willy-nilly and shilly-shally and molly-coddle. He went to him with great assurance. And I always wanted on that man's prayer list. I had a feeling that when he went up there to pray, that the Lord says, Wait a minute, I'm going to listen to my child down there. He's praying. He knows what he's talking about. And I always wanted on his prayer list. And I prayed that he had put me on his prayer list. I didn't want to ask him to because I felt like that wouldn't be as effective if he volunteered. And one day he knew I was pastor of a church and I had a great opportunity and all that sort of thing. And he says, Vernon, I'm praying for you. Huh? Oh, boy, that was a great day. May I say to you, it's wonderful to have assurance, you see. If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Now will you listen? And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. 
Now, love in action gives assurance in prayer. And you can expect God to hear and answer your prayer. And that is something that's desperately needed. You remember the early church when persecution first broke out? That is, the apostles were warned. They went back and reported to the group. And the group went to God in prayer. And they didn't pray that the persecution stopped. They didn't pray anything like that. They began their prayer by saying, Lord, thou art God. And that is the thing that seems to be absent in a great many churches today. Folk are not sure that our Heavenly Father, He's God. He does run this thing, that He is in charge. And that is exactly what John is saying here to us. Now, he goes on to say, and I want to read that verse 22 again. This is important. And whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, verse 23, And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. In other words, John says now, don't say that you believe on Him, and then you do not love one another. That is, with one breath you praise the Lord and say you trust the Lord Jesus, then you tell about so-and-so, how you dislike Him. This type of love doesn't mean that you are going to put your arm around them and that type of love at all or something you talk about. It's not in your lip or your language, but it's going to be in your life. And it'll be a concern for that individual. You won't be gossiping about them. You won't be hurting them in any way. You will be concerned about them. And may I say that that is the thing that is desperately needed today. And this actually is the Christian life in a nutshell right here, that you believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and you love one another as He gave us commandment. And now verse 24, "...and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit whom he hath given to us." Now, the Holy Spirit verifies these things to our hearts if we've not grieved him. And you grieve the Holy Spirit when you don't do his will. When he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't do that, then you grieve the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will verify these things, make them real to your heart. And the Holy Spirit is given to every believer, every child of God, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, he makes that very true and very clear in verse 9 of chapter 8 of Romans. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, he's talking to all the Romans. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. That's the mark that you're a child of God you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. 